0: Judges chapter 10 verse 17 tonight It's where we're going to begin. Judges chapter 10 and verse 17. If you've ever felt the sting of rejection in your life, then you can identify with the man we're going to talk about tonight, a man by the name of Jephthah. In Judges chapter 10 verse 17 though, the Leaders of Gilead, where Jephthah was originally from, have to eat some humble pie. You and I sometimes have had to probably eat some humble pie in our lives, where there was a time in our life where we didn't seek out, nor did we want the help of someone. And then later on down the road, we had to go back to them and ask them for help. That's where the leaders of Gilead are. In chapter 10, verse 17, the Ammonites are about ready to attack. There is a void of leadership in Israel, and the only one that they felt they could go to was the one who had been despised and rejected by men, a man by the name of Jephthah, a man that nobody wanted, an outlaw would be their deliverer. And beginning in chapter 10, verse 17, I just want to read down through these verses and then just go back and just share a few thoughts with you tonight. The Ammonites assembled and camped in Gilead. The Israelites gathered together and camped in Mizpah. The leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is willing to lead the charge against the Ammonites? He will become the leader of all who live in Gilead. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a brave warrior. His mother was a prostitute, but Gilead was his father. Gilead's wife also gave him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they made Jephthah leave and said to him, you are not going to inherit any of our father's wealth because you're another man's son. So Jephthah left his half-brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Lawless men joined Jephthah's gang and traveled with him. It was some time after this when the Ammonites fought with Israel, and when the Ammonites attacked, the leaders of Gilead asked Jephthah to come back from the land of Tob. They said, come be our commander so we can fight with the Ammonites. Jephthah said to the leaders of Gilead, but you hated me and made me leave my father's house. Why do you come to me now when you are in trouble? The leaders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that may be true, but now we pledge to you our loyalty. Come with us and fight with the Ammonites. Then you will become the leader of all who live in Gilead. And on it goes. The point I want to make is this. This chapter gives us a lot of background about this man named Jephthah. We learn in chapter 11 verse 1 that his problem was not his military ability. He was a very brave warrior. It was his mother See, Gilead, Jephthah's father, had an affair with a prostitute. Jephthah was born, Jephthah was the one who suffered, and Gilead and his wife had other children who, by the time they started to think about inheritances, banished Jephthah since he obviously didn't belong. As we read, Jephthah fled to the land of Tob where a band of thugs were ready to embrace him. The parallels between Israel's way with God throughout the book of Judges and Gilead's way with Jephthah are too close to be accidental. When the Israelites are in a jam, they cry to God to bail them out, even though they had rejected Him. The same is true for Jephthah. In fact, we see this pattern even throughout the Bible. This pattern occurs in the case of Israel and Jesus On Pentecost, Peter in the book of Acts says that Israel must welcome and seek the one whom they rejected. Jesus knows what it's like to be despised and rejected. And I want you to notice that what is most striking to me about this entire passage is that God will use this man, son of a prostitute, rejected by his brothers, A leader of thugs to relieve Israel. Jephthah's situation was no fault of his own. He was more victim and sinned against. Yet Jephthah, for whatever reason in many people's eyes, was a loser. Yet the Spirit of God came upon this loser and God gave the Amorites into his power. God chose what men rejected. Tonight, folks, let's be reminded... That all of us through our lives have felt that sting of rejection. We have felt at different times of our life being despised and pushed away. Let's all be reminded tonight that though men and women may despise us and reject us throughout our life, God never will. And though men reject us, we are very precious. And of great value and priceless in the sight of God. God will never push us away. And we have to even realize that not only does God accept us. But that God wants to use those that others reject. Jephthah is a great biblical example of that. You can always go back to Jephthah with that as well. But that's not just true with Jephthah. You think through the Bible of even the anointing of David. How God told the prophet Samuel to go and anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next leader in Israel. And when Samuel gets there, he sees the oldest and the largest and says, Well, that, that's got to be the guy. And he was judging by externals. And God says, No, he's, he's not the one. And down through all of Jesse's sons he went. And God hadn't laid his calling to be the next king of Israel on any of them. Finally, Samuel turns to even Jesse and says, is this it? And even Jesse, David's own father, really had rejected him too because he wasn't even brought in from the fields being a shepherd because there was no thought even from his own family that he could ever be anything more than a shepherd boy. That's why I say over and over again, don't let anyone except God define your life. Let God alone be the one that defines who you are and what you become. Don't even let yourself define who you are and what you become, but let God do that. And then you'll notice that as he spars with the leaders of Gilead, And he finally is convinced that they will embrace him. And in a sense, he takes on the leadership of leading the people of Gilead against the Ammonites. He then begins a conflict with the king of the Ammonites in verse 12. And at first, this conflict with the king of the Ammonites is a conflict of words. Why are the Ammonites attacking Well, according to their king, verse 13, because Israel took my land when he came up from Egypt. Land from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and to the Jordan. So Jephthah and Israel were just to restore the land peaceably. The end of verse 13. Jephthah's answer to this comes in verses 15 through 27. And it's a very important answer. Because even to this day, the whole reason why there is conflict in the Middle East and there is conflict with the nations surrounding Israel and Israel all has to do with this land and who owns it and whose it is. And So the answer that Jephthah is going to give is a very insightful answer that still applies to this day. But before we get to that, I want to talk about the fact that Jephthah was able to give the king of the Ammonites an answer. It reminds us how important it is that we, as Christians today, like Jephthah, know what we believe and why we believe it. And that we are able to give an answer, as Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, to those who ask us of the reason of the hope that is in us. You see, there are times where if we are truly living for Christ, That we won't even have to go out, in a sense, witness that the witness, in a sense, will come to us. That we will be living such a distinct life, such a, a life of difference compared to those around us, that many times they will come and seek us out and ask us, what makes us tick? Why are we reacting or not reacting the way that we are? And so Peter says, always... As a Christian, keep your life centered on the Lord Jesus Christ, set Him apart in your heart as Lord, Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, and then be ready, be ready always to give an answer to those who ask the reason of the hope that is within us. It's important that we have an answer to the world when they ask us about our faith and what we believe and why we believe it. And that answer from every one of us should be based on our own convictions. That's why it's important that we study the Word of God. So that we develop our own convictions about these things. And that we're not living other people's convictions. Because that don't work anyway. That won't last. That's why Paul says to the Romans. I believe in Romans chapter 14 verse 5. That we must be fully persuaded in our own mind. In other words, we must be responsible to develop our own convictions out of our own walk with God, out of listening to the Spirit of God, and our own study of the Word of God. And then it will be out of our own convictions that we are able to answer with conviction those who ask us a reason of the hope that is within us. Well, notice Jephthah's answer. The first argument that Jephthah gives to the king of the Ammonites before they attack is an argument from what I call history. Up in verse 23, Jephthah reminds the king of the Ammonites that God drove out the Amorites. And Israel possessed the land of the Amorites, verses 21 and 22. The land at that time belonged to neither Moab or Ammon. So Jephthah is in a sense saying, why do you mean calling it your land in verse 13? It wasn't yours, it was Amorite. Quit your history twisting. Which is what a lot of folks do today. They twist history to serve their own ends. And Jephthah is simply taking The reality of what's happened in history and says, this was never your land. If you want to get technical and you want to talk about the history here, this was Amorite. This was not Ammonite land. The second argument that Jephthah gives is an argument from theology. In verses 23 and 24, he reminds the king that God dispossessed the Amorites from before his people, Israel. That God gave Israel Sihon's land. It's as simple as that. It was a divine gift. So Jephthah implies in verse 24, you simply have to be content with whatever your God has given you. Jephthah also marshals what I might call the argument from precedent. Verse 25. He says in effect, think about Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab. When Israel was ready to enter the promised land, did he ever fight Israel, alleging that Israel had grubbed land from Moab? If it wasn't Balak's problem, Jephthah says, it shouldn't be yours either. And finally, in verse 26, Jephthah presses the argument from silence. He says in verse 26 of Judges 11, Israel has been living in this land for 300 years. Now, if this land is your land as you say, if this is such a disputed area, why does it only become a hot issue in our day and age? If this is such a sore spot, why hasn't someone else yelled about it in the last 300 years? Why are you raising a stink now? Now, these are all great arguments. But we all know many times that the people that we may be in debate with, don't want to be confused by the facts. So in verse 28, notice the Bible says the Ammonite king disregarded the message sent by Jephthah. At this point in the story, we are reminded in verse 28 that the Lord's Spirit empowered Jephthah. And we've talked throughout the book of Judges of how important it is that we live our lives empowered by the Spirit of God. In the New Testament, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Live by the Spirit. I mean over and over again. Do not grieve the Spirit of God. Do not quench the Holy Spirit of God. Romans chapter 8 is a chapter all about how we can live on a higher plane as Christians if we live by the Spirit and learn to tap into the Spirit. Many Christians go through their lives never learning how to be empowered by the Spirit. They live their lives in their own power, in their own strength. And God never wants any of us to live this life By our own power. So Jephthah was empowered to do what God had called him to do. Which is another encouragement. That God will never call any of us to a task that he will not empower us for. God always enables and equips those he calls. And so if God is asking you to do something. You and I can be sure that he will give us all the resources we need to do it. And to accomplish it. And to do it well folks, the story of Jephthah doesn't end there. We are met with tragedy here. A tragedy born out of words. And isn't that true many times in our lives? Where some of the most painful times in our life was because we said something that we should have never said. We said something stupid. Something flew out of our mouth, and it was like, oh, I wish I could take that back. And as I've said before, our words are like toothpaste. You can't stick it back in the tube once it's out. That's why the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, do you see someone who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Jephthah here is about ready to make a vow. And with this vow, he sought to secure his present. But through it, he ended up sacrificing his future. And some have read this passage and they go, I I can't believe what I'm reading. I I can't believe what's happening. And we're going to get to this. And let me just say that there are many different ways you can take this. But I think the clear reality of it is it is the way it was. And, and some people, the reason I think they balk at it is they go, well, how could Jephthah, the guy that was used to deliver Israel from the Ammonites, how could he have done something so stupid? Well, I guess I ask my, how could I have done some stupid things in my life? How do we do stupid... We just do stupid things sometimes. We we just say things that we shouldn't have said. And we do things that we shouldn't have done. And it's all the more reason why we need to be always empowered by the Spirit and walking in the Spirit rather than walking on our own. And it's very interesting that even though the author briefly notes that God's Spirit empowers Jephthah and traces Jephthah's movements under that power toward his conflict with Ammon in verse 29... He then alludes to something that had taken place, which, as it turns out, will overshadow the rest of the story. The Lord's Spirit empowered Jephthah, verse 29. He passed through Gilead and Manasseh and went to Mizpah and Gilead. From there he approached the Ammonites. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord saying, If you really do hand the Ammonites over to me, then whoever is the first to come through the doors of my house to meet me when I return safely from fighting the Ammonites, he will belong to the Lord and I will offer him up as a burnt sacrifice. Now you'll notice at this point that the writer summarizes in briefest outline the victory that God gave Jephthah because he wants us to focus on what comes from this vow Jephthah has made. You know, at this point, we're thinking, you know, oh, we're going to get some great details about the battle and, and all of this. And there's none of that. There's no details at all. It, it, it's just verse 32. Jephthah approached the Ammonites to fight with them, and the Lord handed him over to him. And he defeated them. And then you get to verse 34. And all attention is falling on Jephthah as he approaches home. And as you read this, it's almost like the reader gasps even before Jephthah can. It sounds as though I think Jephthah actually has to offer up his daughter as a sacrifice. Is that what's going on here? Is that correct? Yes, I believe the most natural reading of verses 30, 31, and 39 is exactly that. And before we read this, I am not saying that the writer, let alone God, approves of it. He never says he does. He is simply reporting the matter. When Jephthah came home, verse 34, to Mizpah, there was his daughter hurrying out to meet him, dancing to the rhythm of tambourines. She was his only child. Except for her, he had no son or daughter. And when he saw her, he ripped his clothes and said, oh, no, my daughter, you have completely ruined me. You have brought me disaster. I made an oath to the Lord and I cannot break it. She said to him, my father, since you made an oath to the Lord, do to me as you promised. After all, the Lord vindicated you before your enemies, the Ammonites. She then said to her father, please grant me this one wish for two months. Allow me to walk through the hills with my friends and mourn my virginity. He said, you may go. He permitted her to leave for two months. She went with her friends and mourned her virginity as she walked through the hills. After two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed. She died a virgin. Her tragic death gave rise to a custom in Israel. Every year, Israelite women commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gilead, for four days. Now we read stories like this and go, what in the world? First of all, We would say, what in the world was Jephthah thinking when he made the vow? I can't answer that. Any more than I can answer, why have I said some stupid things that I should have never said in my life? Why did I do some of the stupid things in my life that I did? And some people try to say, well, he didn't actually sacrifice his daughter and... and, Many believe that when he made that vow, he never dreamed that a human being was going to be the first one out the door. That he was thinking it was going to be one of the animals that was going to come out the door. And he was going to sacrifice that. We don't know what was going through his head. And God doesn't give us insight into what was going through his head. But I do believe it's clear. I believe he sacrificed his only daughter. And the point I want to make is this. First of all, this... Reminds us that our words certainly can get us into trouble many times. And God never asked him to make some kind of vow. In fact, I believe his vow was a sign of his weak faith. It shows again the dark spiritual times that Israel was in. But I think the most important point for me is this He would not have had to sacrifice his daughter. You see in verse 35 he's coming across as if he he has no other choice but to follow through with what he said. And please hear my heart. I'm I'm not saying that the Bible teaches that we shouldn't be true to our word. But in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, a book that Jephthah would and should have been familiar with at this point because they had the first 5 books, the books of the law, the book of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There was right there in Leviticus where God had made provision that if a man or woman made a vow and realized, oh my goodness, this this was something I shouldn't have done, that God made provision for them to turn that around and have to pay, in a sense, a redeeming price, but that they would have never had to follow through with, what they vow. It reminds us of the provision that God makes for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God made provision that I believe could have excused Jephthah from following through with this tragic vow. The thing that impacts my heart is this. Jephthah failed to appropriate God's provision, either because he didn't know what the word of God said Or he had forgot what the word of God said. Which reminds me. Of why I think God says in the Bible. My people many times are destroyed because of their lack of knowledge. That if we just knew more about what was in this book. And the provisions that God made. Many times we would be able to get ourselves out of the jams we find ourselves in. Or prevent ourselves from getting into those jams in the first place. But We don't know it well enough. Again, to me, it's a great reason why we need to study and read our Bibles and be in Bible studies. Because I believe that in this book, God has given us provision for faith, for life, for godliness, for, for getting ourselves out of jams, for preventing ourselves from falling into the pit in the first place. And we just need to know what those provisions are and appropriate those provisions. But if we don't know it, many times we just keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Because we don't know the wonderful truth, as Jesus said, that can set us free. I think the other thing about Jephthah is this before we leave Jephthah tonight. And that is that even though the Ammonites had been whipped... The sky in Gilead was very, very gray. Ammon is subdued, but there is the grave of Jephthah's only child. We have deliverance here, but it's a marred deliverance. And I think the writer is suggesting that if we seek a perfect deliverance, we will have to look to one greater than Jephthah. You see, the writer of Judges seems intent on stressing throughout this book the imperfection and the deliverance that comes through the Judges. Jephthah does remind us of Jesus in that he was despised and rejected by men, but there is something lacking in the deliverance he could bring. The full and perfect deliverance will come only through Jesus Christ. That's why some of the most important, powerful words that was ever spoken on earth with a word spoken right before Jesus bowed his head and died on the cross when he said, It is finished. Those words to all mankind meant that full and final and complete deliverance is now available and found through me. If we're looking for deliverance and if we're looking for answers in other human beings, it's not that we can't, they can't provide something to us, but their deliverance and their help will fall so far short of the help that Jesus Christ can bring. And the writer of of Judges is reminding us of this. In fact, one of the great books on the book of Judges is a book by a man named Gary Enrig, and the title of the book is Hearts of Iron, feet of clay, hearts of iron. Feet. That describes most of the deliverers or judges. Yeah, in and, and a lot of ways they were strong and God used them and in a lot of ways we saw how imperfect they were. Because we're not supposed to look to other human beings for our ultimate deliverance and salvation. We are to look to Jesus Christ alone. He is the one that can provide all that we need. As Paul says to the Colossians. In Christ are hidden, deposited, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if we're looking for wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and truth, and we're looking for it outside of Jesus Christ, we will never find it. But if we're looking for that, we can find everything we need in Jesus Christ alone. He is all we need. He is sufficient. And the writer of Judges is reminding us of that. Let's move on then. From Jephthah in chapter 12 to verse 8. We have a short passage here before we get to chapter 13 in a couple weeks on Samson. By the way, for those of you that weren't here, let me just repeat this again because I might forget at the end. We always in the mind take a fall break and a spring break. This is the last mind for a couple of weeks. We are off next Tuesday the 10th. And we are off the following Tuesday, the 17th. And we will be back on the 24th, right here. And when we come back on the 24th, we're going to spend three or four weeks diving into Samson. And Samson and Delilah and all that. So it's going to be good. So I hope you'll come back. But we want to end tonight with chapter 12. And when you come to the end of chapter 12, you have these very sort of short notices about three other judges or deliverers in Israel after Jephthah. In verse 8, a man by the name of Ibsen. In verse 11, Elan. And in verse 13, Abdon. And you'll notice that we're provided the barest amount of information on these judges. Uh, We're not given a lot. And our curiosity gets frustrated when the Bible is so skimpy. And yet our frustration can prove instructive. Because a passage like this underscores the selectivity of God's Word. As I like to say it, God doesn't answer all the questions we want to know about. But God gives us all the answers in the Bible to the things that we need to know. See, the Bible's selective. Sometimes the Bible goes into great detail about a person's life. Because there's a purpose, there's a reason behind it. Other times, like with these judges, even though they judged in Israel, and I'm sure their lives, there was a lot of stuff, the Bible chooses not to give us a lot of information. Why? Why? Because the Bible is saying that its focus is not on man's life, but on God's action. See, the Bible is what I call theocentric. That doesn't mean that man doesn't count. It just means that man is not the center. Scripture continually cries out, here is your God. And the Scriptures are given so that we might have insight into who God is. And into the ways of God and into the action of God. In people's lives. But it's not primarily about man. It's about God. The Bible is revealed to us. So that we might come to a greater understanding of God. Not man. So that's one of the reasons. Why there is that selectivity when it comes to that. And so if there's a little frustration. When you come to a passage like this. And you wish that God gave you more. Please understand. That there's a reason for it. And it's not because God wanted us to know so much more about these people as much as he wants us to know more about him. And another thing that then you see in this passage is simply this. These verses highlight the enigma of God's providence. Why do I say that? Well, you start reading about this guy named Ibsen in verse 8, and notice verse 9. He had 30 sons. Oh my golly. 30 sons. Now think about this. So this deliverer has 30 sons. Jephthah has one daughter, and she dies tragically. And it's it's these things that we see all the time in life and in the Bible, and we almost automatically ask, why? Why does God give to one and withhold from another? Why does God give and take away, as we sing about in the song? You know... He gives and... Okay, you know what I'm saying. I'm not going to sing. Why does he order our affairs with such differences? Could not the God who spared Jesus in the Gospels shielded the other children in Bethlehem from Herod's butchers? And couldn't the God who delivered Peter in Acts chapter 12 have delivered James as well? Why does James perish while Peter enjoys a miracle? There it is again, side by side, marvelous providence and mysterious providence. How anyone could think God is boring is beyond me. We cannot claim to know why God so works. We can only bow before the one whose understanding is unsearchable. Paul says it this way in Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how fathomless his ways. We can, however, avoid foolish responses to this enigma of God's providence. Like imagining that if the parents of the Bethlehem children had prayed more fervently, or if James had stronger faith, God would have preserved them. And we can keep from inflicting such nonsense on others. You see, the problem is, as human beings, we don't like to be without an explanation. Come on, God, give me an explanation. And when we really get down to it, and I realize this isn't this isn't something we like to hear, but something we need to hear, it really is a sign of our immaturity in our faith. Because think about it. Parallel that, With physical immaturity. What are children always doing? They're always asking, why, 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 why? Because it's really a sign of immaturity. Children are always wanting an explanation, they're always wanting to know why. And hopefully, as we grow and we mature, we realize you know what? I don't always need an explanation. And even if I was given an explanation, I might not understand it anyway. That's where our trust, that's where our faith has to kick in. That's why the Bible says we've got to learn to walk by faith, not by sight. And, and please, hear my heart. I'm not saying as human beings that we're not going to sometimes ask God why. We are. We, I do but I'm just hoping that we learn not to stay there and dwell there and demand that God give us some kind of explanation because God's going to say to all of us like he said to me, Jeff, if I gave you the explanation, you wouldn't understand it anyway because I'm God. You're not going to be able to grasp who I am and why I do what I do. And and you're you're not seeing it all, Jeff. The judgments and, the, and everything that you make is because you're just judging by your little slice of the world. Well, this is how it affects Jeff Roy. So, so God, And God sees how it affects the whole universe, how it affects eternity. We don't ever get to see that kind of perspective. That's why Peter even said, a day is like a thousand years to God and a thousand years are like a day. God experiences more in one 24-hour period than we ever would if we lived for a thousand years. God hears everyone's cries all over the world at all times throughout the day. God hears everything. He sees everything. And His ways are fathomless. That's why faith needs to be willing, if need be, to be baffled. To bow and worship in the dark. Let me repeat that because that's important. Faith needs to be willing, if need be, to be baffled and to bow and worship in the dark. That's why we need to keep growing, folks. Because many of us aren't there yet. We're still at the level where we're trying to figure out why all the time. And that's the enigma and mystery of God's providence. The other thing I want you to note here in this passage is the absence of God's rest. One of the breaking points in the book of Judges, if you remember back to Gideon, is that when Gideon leaves the scene, that's the last time you hear that God's rest, this gift that God wants to give his people, is found in the book of Judges. And the reason that is significant is because it reminds us that though we would read verses 8 through verse 15 of chapter 12 and think like everything's normal. You know, leaders are still being lifted up to, to deliver and judge. And, 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 you know, human activity is going on as normal. It seems like life is going on, except guess what? The quality of life and the quality of time is different. Life among God's people may seem business as usual, but the appearance is deceiving. Something is absent. Something is missing. And that's an important thing to remember. Because we can get caught up in that trap as well. Because we live in a world where many times it's all about appearances And keeping up appearances. And it's all about knowing what's what I need to do to to put forth the image that that other people have and whatever. But when we really try to look within, there's no reality there. It's just a shell, and there's something missing, and God wants to fill that missing part up. Because let's face it, if we're all honest, there have been times in our life where we've just gone through the motions. We know what we need to do. If, if people were to observe our lives for a few days, they would say, Hey, Jeff looks like nothing's wrong. Like, it's just business as usual. Activity as usual. And yet I may be dying inside. That's what's happening right here in the book of Judges. That's why Paul said something very important in 2 Timothy. He says, we can maintain the outward appearance but may lack any real spiritual power. Wow, that's pretty sobering. We may be able to maintain an outward appearance like, everything's okay between me and God, and and I'm, I'm doing okay, and if someone was to ask, how you doing, I'm doing okay. I mean, again, we know what to say, we know what to do, but what about what's really going on? We need to be careful, folks. That we try to match the outside with the inside. And that really that our focus needs to be the inside. Because if the inside is where it should be, if there's the inner reality there of a true communion and, and relationship with God, then the outside will take care of itself. And we won't have to try to put on and play games and be fake and not be transparent. God is calling us to Transparency. And sometimes in order to get to transparency, it means we have to be willing to honestly look within and go, Nope, nothing there. And be honest. And allow God to begin to fill us with himself. Because only Jesus Christ can really fill that void in our lives that's going to give us that power that Paul's talking about. Let's be careful, folks. That we are living in a world today of shall we just say it this way? Fakes. (laughs) We're living in a world of illusion. Where many people are trying to put forth a certain image and keep up an image. And let's be careful as followers of Jesus Christ that we not get caught up in that. And that we are living from reality from within. Finally, in this passage, we observe how these entries note the deaths of God's leaders. Death, the lot of man at last claims his due of the great and the good, and whatever else may, we may hear of any man, we are sure to hear one thing, that he died. Notice verse 10, Ibsen died and he was buried. Elan, verse 12, he died. Abdon, verse 15, he died. See, the Bible says everyone shares the same fate. The book of Ecclesiastes says the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the same fate awaits everyone. But not everyone awaits their fate the same. I personally believe that those who are prepared to die are most prepared to really live. Because I know that my Jesus has already promised me in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. And when you and I are prepared for death, we can really live. Because then we know death isn't the end. And we know that we can just live our lives to the fullest. We know that through Jesus Christ, we have been given life and immortality through the gospel. In fact, I want to, in closing tonight, take you to 1 Corinthians 15. I hope this will be an encouragement to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a passage that I share many times in funeral and memorial services. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 50. Again, yes, the Bible does remind us That everyone shares the same fate, yet not everyone awaits their fate the same. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50, here's what the Apostle Paul says. Now this is what I'm saying, brothers and sisters. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the blinking of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now when this perishable puts on the imperishable, and this mortal puts on the immortality, then the saying that is written will happen. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, based upon that wonderful truth that through Christ we will be resurrected and live forever, Paul says it should have a here and now impact as well. It shouldn't just be a pie in the sky, by and by. It should be that this truth makes a difference in my everyday life here, which is why he ends this passage with these words in verse 58. So then, dear brothers and sisters, be firm. How we need Christians today in this world of change and in this world that that is so uncertain and where there is so much hopelessness and despair and discouragement out there. We need Christians through the truth that God gives them, through the provision of His Word, to know this Word, so that they can be firm in the trials and storms of life. And so that we not be noticed, moved. God wants His children to be calm and composed, not tossed to and fro. Always be outstanding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Wow. Folks, every time you come to the mine on Tuesday night, you may leave here some Tuesdays going, no, oh, that wasn't worth it. But can I just say, I think from God's perspective, just by the fact we've opened up the book, He's going to say, you know what? It wasn't in vain. It was worth it. Every service, every ministry, every conversation, even as Jesus said, giving a cup of water in my name, it's never going to be in vain in the Lord. Because death has been conquered by Jesus Christ. And He's brought life and immortality to His people. Be firm, folks be steadfast. Do not be moved by what's going on in this world today. Be strong in the Lord and in his marvelous grace. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for reminding us of these truths in the book of Judges and reminding us, Lord, that we will never find deliverance in anyone or anything but Jesus Christ alone. All deliverance in some other people or in some other thing is totally incomplete. But the deliverance that Jesus Christ can bring to a life is absolute. It is complete. It is all in all. God, help us through these days to fix our anchor in You. Help us to be firm. Help us to be stable. And not to find our stability in anything on this earth, but in our relationship with you. I feel sorry for Jephthah. I personally feel that there was provision that you made if he would have just taken that provision. But he never applied the provision that you gave to him for that situation. And his daughter lost her life. I think, Lord, How through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who can take away the sin of the world, that you have provided provision for everyone on this planet to have their sins wiped away. And yet there are many, Lord, who will never turn to that provision and apply it to their life and go out into eternity without Christ. How tragic. How sad that even though, Lord, you've given us the provision, many times we fail to apply it. God, help us to do that. Encourage us, Lord, as only you can. Keep us strong, God. And bring us back in a couple weeks to learn more from the book of Judges, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, I'm going to miss you. Have a great couple weeks. See you back in a couple weeks.